Right, good evening ladies and gentlemen. I'm Tim Cansdale and I'm chairman of the Rotocraft group here within the Society. Welcome to tonight's Sierra Memorial Lecture. And uh, I'm pleased to ask our Chief Executive, Keith Manns, to come up and introduce the lecturer and the speaker. Thank you, Tim. And it's a great delight to introduce tonight's speaker. Andrew Warner joined, it says here, the British Army Air Corps. Um, yes, we're probably rather pretentious in Britain. We just think of ourselves as having things without nations in front of them. But joined the Army Air Corps after reading Engineering and Science at Oxford University. And he served in Northern Ireland, Cyprus, at Germany, and Germany before attending the ETPS. And after that, he worked at the Royal Aircraft Establishment at Farnborough, mainly on the development of uh, electro-optics for battlefield helicopters. In 1986, he joined with Messerschmitt uh, as the company program pilot for the Tiger attack helicopter. And following that, in 1995 to 2004, he was the chief test pilot of the Eurocopter Deutschland during the main development phase of the NH-90, the EC-135 and the EC-145. He is now chief test pilot of Eurocopter in France. He's flown 70 types of aircraft, 20 of them as a pilot in command, and was awarded the Annan Marsh Medal from the Royal Aeronautical Society in 1993. Well, what more do you want, having been awarded that medal? Uh, Anyway, Andrew, you're singing for your supper tonight. Over to you. Right. Thanks very much, Keith, for that introduction. It's a tremendous honor to be invited uh, to, pres- to give this uh, lecture this evening. Um, it's a very important milestone in the uh, Rotary Wing calendar. And uh, I, it's, uh, it's a momentous task to try and put something across here which, uh, from which we can all learn. And I hope that I'll be able to uh, talk to you about uh, my experiences in the European uh, helicopter industry, the other side of the channel, um, and some of the things I've learnt from that over the last uh, 20 years. Um, I'm British by birth, uh, German by marriage, uh, French by choice of residence, and um, uh, somewhat Polish uh, in my veins due to an overdose of vodka over the weekend, having attended my son's wedding in Krakow. So uh, if I start to stammer during the presentation, you know what the reason is. Um, just on the question of uh, British, I have to write British Army Air Corps in my CV because uh, some, if it's uh, the other side of the channel, it's unknown. I realize it is the Army Air Corps. Uh, hopefully one day the Royal Army Air Corps, but uh, that's another question. Um, and looking through Waterstones this morning, I, I noticed with dismay that the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds still names its main catalogue as the Birds of Britain and Europe. I long for the day. I long for the day when the name of that book is changed. I will consider it the milestone I'm waiting for. Um, my, the title of my lecture this evening: Integration, Man and Machine. Uh, excuse me for using the term "man" in there. It's uh, quite difficult to uh, choose that, and I, re- I hope I haven't offended anybody in that. Um, indeed, I think that we can probably say that on, from Eurocopter, we are ahead of the uh, rest of the industry. Certainly, within our air crew. At Eurocopter, we have uh, two out of 30 of our aircrew are, in fact, female. So we're working on that issue. 
I chose integration as a theme word to follow through what is essentially a set of uh, reminiscences about my experiences over the last uh, couple of decades. Um, and I will be talking about the integration of companies, of teams, of people into working units, uh, the integration of air crew into their aircraft, and the integration or systems integration, the high level of systems integration, which we now see in the latest generation of aircraft, such as the NH-90. The actual slides which I'll be covering this evening, um, I'll be going briefly through 100 years of helicopters. It is a milestone year this year. Uh, I'll be talking about the birth of Eurocopter as I witnessed it, um, the cultural differences that I witnessed and how they've had an influence on the company. I'm afraid you won't get away without me bashing on about my favorite aircraft, the Tiger, um, and included in that, of course, some talk about aerobatics. Um, I'll be talking about the NH-90 and the EC-725 or 225 um, to demonstrate some of the uh, elements of uh, high levels of systems integration. I'll be talking about some man-machine interface elements. I'll be banging the Everest drum, which hasn't been banged enough, I believe, on the Eurocopter side. We landed on Everest, and there are still a lot of people out there who don't know that. So I'll be talking to, about that uh, to some extent. And then the future, some ideas for the future, just to kick off a few questions at the end. But first, um, it's a milestone year this year. In a month's time, we'll be celebrating the first free helicopter flight performed by Paul Cornu on the 13th of November in 1907. And um, he was a, an ingenious uh, French uh, bicycle maker and repairer. I suppose he had a lot in, in common with the, with the Wright brothers. And he believed that the helicopter was of more immediate use than the airplane. I still confirm, uh, contrary to what Keith was saying about airplanes being, being dominant in the market, that, that uh, we have certainly in a variety of uses, we certainly uh, lead the fixed-wing people. The helicopter he manufactured considered, consisted of a V-frame with an engine mounted in the center, and the uh, pilot seated astride the engine, uh, I assume with ear protection of some sort. Um, two main, two large rotors, one at either end, and some paddles mounted under the rotors for steering the aircraft. The whole thing was driven by a 20-meter uh, um, belt, which uh, in fact caused him a lot of trouble, the adhesion on the belt of actually driving the rotors. But he, uh, despite various setbacks, uh, continued and pushed on and eventually managed uh, 20 seconds of free flight, which is a major milestone. Um, I think one of the, usually these things are linked to other technological breakthroughs, and here obviously we have the fact that the piston engine, the petrol-driven engine, was uh, really becoming reliable and powerful at that stage, and he was using the same engine as Monsieur Blériot did when he crossed the uh, channel. Um, I'll just go to, uh, for you, for some of you, quite a well-known quote. It is said that a helicopter doesn't want to fly. It's maintained in the air by a variety of forces and controls working in opposition to each other. And if there's any disturbance in this delicate balance, the helicopter stops flying immediately and disastrously. This is why helicopter pilots are brooding, introspective anticipators of trouble. They know that if something bad has not happened, then it's about to. Now, Monsieur Cornu, delightful chap if you start reading about him, he went on to survive uh, his first flight and produce 
immense numbers of grandchildren. I lost count going through the, his family tree, but it's quite an extraordinary character. And he obviously at this stage, judging by the smile on his face, was unaware of the possibilities lying ahead of him. He was a very pragmatic man, and one of the interesting elements of his helicopters was the footrest, which simply consisted of a pair of horse stirrups. A rather nice addition, a very pragmatic solution, particularly for um, helicopters, which later to be operated by mounted regiments. So uh, there we are. The Air and Space Museum at Le Bourget and the French uh, Transport Engineering School are building a replica of this helicopter at this moment and uh, hope to fly it sometime. This... Uh, Following Monsieur Sieva 100 years ago, we then went into a phase of uh, uh, Breguet and, um, sorry, um, uh, Cornu. Uh, we had a phase in the 30s where Breguet, Sieva, and Fokker, uh, three gentlemen in uh, France, Spain, and Britain, uh, and Fokker in Germany, were all uh, working on the helicopter and solving the various problems which they encountered at that stage. And they, those three, in fact, if you look into the Eurocopter family tree, uh, form pillars of the later Eurocopter family tree. Um, and this is a picture taken in the uh, of the of one of the Sieva autogyros in the uh, museum at the airfield where our daughter company, our third pillar in Spain, is based. Looking into the uh, genealogy of Eurocopter, you come automatically up with with uh, the fact that the German side of the helicopter world were making remarkable progress uh, before and during the Second World War. This picture shows Hannah Reich uh, flying um, the uh, Fokker Agilis uh, 61 inside the Deutschlandhalle. She actually performed this uh, despite the safety regulations which would forbid it nowadays uh, in front of uh, packed audiences on many occasions. And when she performed it for the first time in front of the crowds, she, in fact, only had three hours of flying experience on, the air, on that particular aircraft. Most of the aircraft at this time were, uh, took uh, normal fixed-wing fuselages and just sawed off the propeller down to a level where it didn't provide thrust but just cooled the engine. The breakthrough, really, on the German side came with the uh, contra-rotating, uh, interlocking, uh, intermeshing rotors. Um, and this was pushed forward by a company called Flettner. And this shows already around 1940 the sort of uh, precision and uh, the fact that also the designers and makers of these aircraft had already realized that they had an immense number of roles waiting for them. And this little bit of footage here represents what is probably one of the uh, first uh, demonstration of uh, rescue missions. So they were even during the war, looking around at the potential uses of the aircraft. Flettner went on to produce some extremely agile aircraft. Um, this is the uh, Colibri, and this aircraft was in fact, in fact used for various uh, roles, such as uh, reconnaissance during the war. The Navy also got interest. You can see some the stability of the thing here. It's also quite remarkable, presumably without an AFCS. Um, and the Navy were obviously interested and were using it for landing on, on decks and so on. Um, working for this, there was a young chap who joined the company Flettner shortly after the war um, called Mr. Bokor, who was to form one of the three pillars of Messerschmitt Bokor Blom, which was to become one of the halves of Eurocopter. As you can see, they'd already thought up of light transport. They were producing them in mass numbers. They were also flying them in formation. And... Uh, 
this was all uh, brought to a halt by the uh, bombing in, at the end of the war, unfortunately, and most of the aircraft were destroyed. But already during the last phases of the war, uh, low-level reconnaissance and those sort of missions, which we now talk about with aircraft like the Tiger, were already being performed. That was, of course, after the war there was the... Uh, um, complete ban on aviation industry in Germany, which brought the thing to a standstill. And it didn't really recover until the, the days of Mr. Bokel. So the Eurocopter genealogy, just looking back to some of those names that I was mentioning, uh, we have uh, Fokker, uh, we had the Sieva uh, lot, which were, there were some of the offshoots of the Sieva initial works were down here, although he very soon moved to UK. Um, uh, basically, M Eurocopter formed out of what was then MBB and Aerospatial and came in 1992 to form Eurocopter. And I was right in the thick of it at the time, um, uh, working on Tiger. Since then, we've taken the Spanish uh, company from Casa as our third leg of the company. And it's not a daughter company. It's actually considered a leg of the company. And we now have uh, daughter companies and production sites worldwide. Interestingly enough, uh, uh, we had at the, in the, at the, at the time, or I suppose around 19, late 60s, 70s and so on, we also had a lot of cooperation between uh, the French Axis and, and, and Westlands, but nothing, nothing became of that. It's quite interesting to think what might have happened if, if that Axis, based on the links, the Gazelle and the Puma, had in fact cemented itself. Anyway, Eurocopter started to be uh, really amalgamated in the early 90s, and one of the first milestones was the uh, fact that the German side had been building the B0108, which I was very fortunate to fly in some of its initial um, test work, uh, which was had a revolutionary uh, bearingless main rotor, um, but a conventional tail rotor. And as soon as we started working with the French, uh, they proposed that we should put the new uh, version of the Fenestron onto this aircraft. This is nothing like the Fenestron, which many of us know in Britain from the Gazelle. This was a second-generation Fenestron with a very, very high efficiency. And uh, we were introduced from the German, we were invited from the German side to go down to Marignan and to fly two Ecure, one of them equipped with a normal tail rotor. Normally, this aircraft has a conventional tail rotor on the back end here. And uh, this one, which was equipped with a Fenestron, we did a, a fly-off between the two with French test pilots and German test pilots. And uh, based on that report, we plugged the Fenestron onto the BO-108 and we created the, BO, the EC-135, which is now, uh, I gather, um, I was talking to some people in Dornau, we're now producing number 620 and going up to 200 per year. It really is a rip-roaring success and it's a lovely aircraft to operate and to, uh, and to work with. Um, we've also got a production line in Spain uh, on this uh, on this aircraft. At the time uh, that the EC-135 that we were working together on it, we were also competing on all sorts of other uh, fields. There was a sort of transition phase between where Aerospatial and MBB were working together on some things, competing on others. One of the other ones where we were both invited to help the Indians to produce a, a light transport uh, aircraft um, and to put a team in Bangalore to help the Indians uh, get this aircraft going. And in fact, uh, both companies, Aerospatial and MBB, competed for that contract, and it was eventually MBB who put the team in Bangalore, and they spent m many years producing this aircraft, which is quite a remarkable aircraft. It's got a, uh, a Tiger main rotor, 
And it's basically like an EC145, only a little bit, uh, well, it's considerably larger. Has a remarkable performance at high altitude. And uh, we were asked to go along to Bangalore to fly this thing. Um, and that really was, in terms of cultural differences, uh, a great eye-opener. Um, working with the Indian engineers, absolutely brilliant in their technical fields, but many, uh, in many ways blocked by a cultural reluctance to criticize one another. They're delightful people, but just uh, un unwilling to criticize, unwilling to write negative flight reports and so on. And that uh, was very interesting coming into that situation completely cold and making negative comments and suddenly having uh, Ministry of Defense phoning up from uh, Delhi saying what's going on here. Um, but anyway, it's a lovely aircraft to fly. It's very maneuverable. Obviously, it's got a, it's got the rigid Tiger rotor. It's got a, um, a very interesting, um, hub. Uh, the control rods are inside a circular rotor, uh, mast hub. And so they're completely concealed. So you can't inspect them before flight. So the pilot used to going around and checking all his control rods. You can't do this on this aircraft, but you just have to believe that it's not necessary. So Eurocopter started to bloom in the, uh, mid-90s when I was uh, uh, working in, in Marignan on the uh, on the Tiger. And in fact, at one time, uh, we had, uh, f flying at the Farnborough Air Show, five types, uh, this was the Le Bourget Air Show, five types, none of which were yet fully certified and all of which were in production. And this was a real leaning out of the window in terms of uh, private venture and private investment. And uh, it was a great risk for the company. Any uh, number of these products could have gone seriously wrong, but in fact, they've all turned out to be real successes. So uh, we're very fortunate. It, it could have been, it was a very dangerous depth of personal invest, of, of private investment from the company. Okay, now on to the Tiger. Um, it's... Uh, I went to Marignan in 1991 to fly as a MBB pilot with the Aerospatial team at the Aerospatial site. At the time, at the airport in Marignan, they had a big uh, poster which said, to quote uh, uh, Genesis, and Eurocopter created the Tiger. In fact, I think the truth was the other way around. It was the Tiger created Eurocopter because it was the working together on this program which was forced by the government saying, you must get together and produce us an attack helicopter. We can't do it individually, which made the whole thing work. So even the NH-90 program was diluted by other participants. But the Tiger program, we really were thrown into it and made to go into this courtship around the Tiger program, which eventually turned into the marriage, which turned into Eurocopter. So we had a, a flight test team in Marignan which was very, very democratic. There was one German pilot, one French pilot, one German engineer, one German, uh, French engineer, all the way down to mechanics, analysis engineers, instrumentation engineers, the whole team to perform the flight test. The same was repeated in the systems development department. In every single department, there was a matching team on each side. The responsibility was 50-50. The working language was English, and everybody was working on a, on a level playing field. It was a very, very pleasant atmosphere. And there was a real will to, to make it work. Ironically, however, MBB, the German company, sent uh, their two aircrew to Marignan, uh, happened to be two Brits. This is just a historical accident um, that the Germans should send Brits to represent them in France. Um, but it, um, it's perhaps uh, not entirely surprising, considering that 
Even now, amongst the air crew in Germany, we have seven nationalities represented. So it's a really cosmopolitan country, uh, company, and it, it uh, gives it a very good air. The whole thing was also confused by the fact that the French pilot's name was Herrenschmidt. So many a poor journalist got it completely muddled up and made him the German and Warner the Frenchman. So that's, uh, anyway... Uh, just to uh, just as an aside to explain how how a Brit happened to finish up working in in, in Germany in the first place, um, I uh, the Germans decided to write a set of rules to governing licensing of test pilots, something which nobody has managed before or since. Even the French one is really rather rather military based. But um, and in writing these rules, they excluded all Germans. So um, when when MBB started looking for a pilot to work on the Tiger program, they could only they only had G uh, French and Brits and Dutchmen and things like that to choose from. Anyway, we still wait with longing for a set of rules governing governing test pilot licenses within Europe. I hope one day that we will get that one sorted out. So close cooperation between the team. You see here, everything's a joint effort. Uh, celebration at the end of the first flight of the first prototype of uh, Tiger, one uh, quasi-German and one Frenchman holding a bottle of champagne and uh, dousing the aircraft in the usual fashion. Um, in order to ensure complete uh, equality of the nations, the champagne was thereafter washed off with vice beer uh, <laughs> provided by the German mechanics. So that sort of that sort of banter, there was an evening group of German mechanics who would sit in the corner of the hangar and drink their vice beer, which they'd smuggled in in missile containers and that sort of thing. And it was a lovely atmosphere. So right from the beginning, we had a lot of differences and diversity of, of culture amongst the employees of Eurocopter. But there were positive measures taken right from the beginning to avoid misunderstanding and to make sure that people worked together and that they understood uh, that we were actually confronting different difficulties, differences. It's not just the fact that you have a northern European attitude to going about things, as in the, with the German way of doing it, to the more Latin way in the um, on the French side. You also have completely different engineering habits between the two companies, which I think you'll probably find between any two companies, even if, even companies from the same. Uh, nationality. So MBB, for example, had been grown up on the lucrative Tornado and BO-105 programs. They had completely cornered the emergency medical services market. So there was a sort of air of innovative freedom. The engineers were allowed to do whatever they want, uh, to perfect things, which is always a very expensive matter. And uh, the business of actually earning money with this lot wasn't, didn't really come into the foreground until we started to form together with Eurocopter and were made to give up our hobby of making helicopters and start making money instead. The four phases of cultural integration, as seen from my point of view, the first phase, <coughs> curiosity, bottle, glasses of vice beer and that sort of thing, great. Very positive. Everybody goes along with it as a positive air. And then you pass into a phase of culture shock. You suddenly realize that you might not actually be understanding the person the other side of the table. And that is a generally negative phase. This is a, 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 a generally accepted uh, rule. You then pass into a phase of integration, and that's where the company really has to make an effort to make sure that everybody's on the level playing field, that you're speaking English instead of having to speak the other person's language and so on. And then finally, you're in the stabilization phase, and I can say that <clears throat> quite clearly on the Eurocopter side, that's gone positive. 
and people generally work together. There's always a tendency to drift apart, not to pick up the phone and speak to your German, your French colleague or whoever, which never, you tend to speak to your own nation rather than the one the other side of the Rhine. But um, with a working language as English, there's really no excuse. Keep stumbling across linguistic barriers. Um, the, the classic one is the word concept. Uh, translated from English to a Frenchman asked to come to a meeting with a concept and a German asked to come to the meeting with a concept. For a Frenchman, it's a, it's a vague idea, some sort of foundation of something that's going to grow. For a German, a concept is the finished product. It's got all the details and it's right down to the last line. It just needs to be signed and sent off. And so you can have some fairly spectacular meetings with teams turning up with different ideas like that. Uh, other elements of uh, cultural integration. Um, just to outline some of what I believe I've witnessed um, as the differences between the two nations. The French generally tend to have their fingers in three or four pies at once. The Germans like to have their serial rule. They shut the door to their office, get the job finished, and then start on the next one. The French doors are always open. People are coming and going, and it's all multitasking. The great thing about all these differences is that they all have immense advantages, and if you can squeeze out the advantages and push aside the disadvantage, then you really have synergy. In France, trust is more person-based, and it's granted to you. In France, it's far, it's far more sachlish thing. It's a far more fact-based, technical thing, and it has to be earned, and you can lose it by writing one bad report. A Frenchman will, will go out and find his information through his means and, and ways. A German will sit and expect information to be delivered. They even have a word for it, bringschuld. So they sit and wait for information to deliver. So sometimes you have a complete impasse when both sides don't know what's going on. For a Frenchman, discussion is very important. So, excuse me, Jacques. <laughs> we have a Frenchman here, so I have to throttle myself back every now and then. <laughs> discussion is very important, and it'll go on and on and on, and the, French, the Germans will be sitting in the corner saying, can we leave the room, can we go and get stuck into the work, actions priority, and so on. So there's a difference there. Strangely enough, uh, for the French, though, they, they have a, tend to have a short planning phase and then a, and a sort of flexible execution phase, whereas the Germans, like a long... Uh, planning with in right into detail and then a, a short sharp execution with no uh, with reduced flexibility so again if you can take all the advantages of these all these elements and plug them together you've got great synergy the french impromptu meetings six o'clock in the evening in the corridor is the best place to to make a decision uh, for the germans it's uh, nine o'clock in the morning with an agenda and see how we go from there um, so getting those two into one meeting room and trying to chair a meeting where uh, the two elements are pulling in different directions can be difficult. Um, in France, just, this, is just a, this doesn't have too much effect on the actual work, but in France there is an elitist education based on les grandes écoles, um, and there are in fact a large number of doctors walking around amongst the French people who aren't called Dr. So-and-so. On the German side, the background, actually where you studied and so on doesn't matter that much, but half the population seems to be called Dr. Schmidt or Dr. Meyer. So they have their titles, but they don't, they, the, where the titles were acquired isn't so important. And you have to know where the titles were acquired in France and you have to understand who is getting which job and why. Uh, but it works. It works. And it's not far off Britain, or Britain as it used to be. Right. Um, you have to excuse me while I bash on about the tiger. I'm going back to, to the tiger again now. Um, this shows the first flight of the tiger again, uh, as you can see, against the aerospatial background. So still well before the days of Eurocopter. And um, I just point out some of the, the development uh, 
changes that we made. You can see here a very large tailplane mounted at the rear. This is a classic, every helicopter that goes into production. Anything aft of the main rotor is unknown in terms of aerodynamics. It's very difficult to judge. <clears throat> what we had was we had a main rotor which was initially very sensitive to mast moment. And as you moved into forward flight, the downwash hit the tail rotor, the cyclic went forward, and you had a mast moment peak. And it was generally considered not to be the correct solution for that and other reasons. So it was moved forward to have less moment arm, also to uh, um, uh, redu in reduced in size, and also to be in the downwash already in the hover. We even took the ends off at one stage. And we even took the whole thing off at one stage and flew the aircraft up to 100 knots without a horizontal stabilizer, and it was remarkably controllable. Um, but eventually, the maintainers won, and the horizontal stabilizer was put back at the rear end underneath the tail rotor so that you can climb up here on these steps up onto the horizontal stabilizer and work on the tail rotor. Also, the antennae, these end plates are just aerodynamic they help aerodynamically, but uh, one of their prime uh, raison d'être is uh, being antennae. Uh, agility. Obviously, with the role of the Tiger, uh, low level and air-to-air, -air, agility is an extremely important element. And uh, the aircraft was provided with a rigid rotor right from the beginning. And uh, agility was written very large in the design of the aircraft, and it is an extremely ag agile aircraft. <clears throat> in order to prepare for this testing, we both went off on the French and German side and prepared ourselves for aerobatics uh, on the German side. Typical German rules, there is actually a helicopter aerobatics license in Germany which has to be had if you want to turn the thing upside down. So I had the, uh, the uh, honor of being trained by the then world champion uh, Rainer Wilke um, to perform aerobatics on the BA-105. At the same time, my French colleague was going off and turning a panther upside down. And we were able to come back together and compare notes. It was uh, quite an interesting phase. Um, and uh, I remember one of the uh, questions being posed to me when I came back from one of the phases of the 105 course by the Frenchman <clears throat> with the panther, which unfortunately has a very good rotor, but it's not a rigid rotor like the BO-105. And so things can go wrong. And he asked me, they were battling with their entry speed for a loop at the time, which was plus minus 10 knots, around 100 knots or so. And he asked me what the entry speed of a loop for a 105 is, and it is anything from 30 knots backwards to 150 knots forwards. Um, so uh, we had quite a bit of difference, and there was a considerable amount of envy from the French side. And in fact, there was actually an attempt at one stage to sabotage the rigid rotor on the Tiger and put a, a, a Puma-type rotor on it. But fortunately, that was uh, sol we solved our problems that we had with the rigid rotor by other means, by changing the coning angle. So... Um, Initially, when we started playing around with the Tiger, we had a, a coning angle in the head. Actually, in the, in the head, there was already a coning angle, and the blades were straight. And that was causing us quite a lot of uh, stress problems. So we actually moved the coning angle into the blades and kept the head flat. And that freed us from constraints. And all of a sudden, we were able to go from just doing simple torque turns and so on to going into full loops. But... Uh, the problem with aerobatics is that there is no legislation and there is no boss who is prepared to sign for the first loop. And so we had to keep it. We couldn't go all the way up to the top of the hierarchy with the permission for the first loop, so we just did it within the flight test team because we knew it was absolutely meaningless in terms of constraints or danger or anything. 
And in fact, the telemetry were completely unaware when we performed the first loop because uh, it didn't show up on the stresses at all. We then moved on to uh, develop a set of maneuvers for air shows. Um, obviously, we're not into the business of complete um, uh, carefree handling, and uh, we had to go one maneuver at a time. The loop start is the most natural. And we kept bumping up against the fact that there's no legislation covering the matter. And in fact, the first time we ran in and did our first loop for our first practice in Farnborough, the tower simply called, you are to come and land and come to the tower immediately. Uh, we really felt like uh, schoolboys who'd been wrapped over the knuckles. And uh, there was a gross misunderstanding, but we went and explained it and cleared it up and produced all the traces to prove that it was actually uh, no real problem and um, went on to uh, perform the aerobatics at Farnborough. Okay, so uh, I'll just go on to a short video of some of the Tiger aerobatics for those who haven't actually ever seen it at an air show. That's a simple roll. I say a simple, it's probably one of the most difficult maneuvers. Um, this is a, a loop with a twist uh, at the top, which is actually quite a, a pleasant one. It's also very useful for air shows for changing line. Um, classic uh, torque turn. quite vertical but uh, solving it on the way down and complete roll agility on the way down so very easy to roll here you can see a roll off the hover that's one way of illuminating every single warning in the cockpit because all the oil goes to the wrong places and uh, all the fuel goes to the wrong places there's no, no problem with the aircraft it's just that it's oversensitive the loop, which is totally benign, as I said, and can be entered at more or less any speed. And then my absolute favourite, which is a copy from the links, in fact, is just sitting in the hover and going over backwards. And that is a, that is a wonderful sensation. But it's, it's copied, as I said. Many years we wanted to start that one. It was, in fact, one of our latest ones. And they all said, the links can do it, so can we. So... Interestingly enough, uh, in terms we've been searching for legislation about how to control aerobatics for passing on the aircraft to the user. And just as a matter of interest, we come up with 90 degrees of pitch or 120 degrees of roll as being the one which everybody agrees with. Anything beyond 90 degrees is aerobatics in pitch, and anything beyond 120 degrees in roll is aerobatics. And it seems to be a generally accepted uh, limitation. Um, going on to the uh, man-machine interface of uh, attack helicopters, um, here we see the uh, head-up display in one of the early Tigers. The early Tigers did not have a helmet-mounted sight and display, and all the information required for flight, navigation, and for weapon aiming is presented in, to the pilot in a fixed mirror system up in front of the uh, pilot. Very nice, uh, very precise, but... Uh, quite antiquated and had to be got rid of and will be not present in future Tigers, will be uh, replaced by the helmet-mounted sight and display. This is what the well-dressed uh, attack helicopter pilot is wearing nowadays. The um, helmet is actually more comfortable than it looks. Uh, the visor is transparent, and you can see here that due to a strange reflection, um, the two green circles on the front of the uh, uh, visor which represent the holographic mirrors which reflect the image of either um, symbology coming out of a, a cathode ray tube at the side uh, 
or the night vision goggles mounted at the side or um, from infrared coming from different sources in the aircraft. Um, just interesting to note from this aircraft, the field of view in the Tiger to the rear is quite remarkable. That's facing backwards. You really have got everything bar <clears throat> about plus minus 15 degrees rearwards visible to the pilot, which is very useful in uh, nap of the earth work. So what I see is the stabilized, the standard future for um, attack helicopters or imagery in general is a set of, or we still have, when I was working at Farnborough many moons ago, we, we were kept being told that infrared was going to overtake night vision goggles. And it's been going to overtake night vision goggles for the last 30 years and it hasn't achieved it. So they are both complementary. Um, and the delightful thing in the Tiger is you can choose on the stick which one you want, whether you have just the light intens intensifier goggles or some sort of infrared source on the outside of the aircraft. They all have their advantages and disadvantages, and you can switch from one to the other as you wish. So you have the various images ge generated by the three different types of sensors on the aircraft, either on the helmet or on the nose for the pilot or on one of the uh, sites. And they can now be displayed, and I believe that's the way it should be in the future for um, more or less any military helicopter, either on the helmet of the, of the air crew, any of the crew members, uh, or in the cockpit, head down, or obviously for firing in the uh, periscope. So just uh, coming on to uh, Tiger weapons, I'll just uh, give you some uh, information on the... Um, the different weapons which are now putting into the latest version of the Tiger, it's, it's, we've now believe we've almost got the suite complete. Um, I'll go through them one by one. We start off with the gun, uh, a remarkably accurate gun, works out the position, velocity, and acceleration of the aircraft and of the target, and then gets a firing uh, um, solution of those two. So incredible accuracy in all phases of flight, even in air-to-air -air firing. Um, and for this, because of the high accuracy, we only require, we only need to carry 150 rounds for a normal mission, which is uh, considerably down on, on what has been uh, required in, with previous systems. So very, very precise. Rockets still remain slightly imprecise because you don't know what happens when they leave the aircraft. Hellfire, well known in the UK, now flown, this is in Woomera in the firing range in Australia, um, where we fired it two years ago. Fascinating place to work, a range 3,000 kilometers long and 200 kilometers wide. Um, so you can do more or less anything you want. And we have the air-to-air -air missiles, different types, and the Germans are using the HOT missile, which is, uh, this is firing on a German range. Also an interesting range because they have to, they have to close the main road. There's a sort of public road, a B road, which crosses in, fr in the, halfway between you and the target, and it's closed for a half hour window. And you ha you're not allowed to put the weapons on the aircraft until it's closed. And putting the weapons on the aircraft, starting it up and everything, takes about 29 minutes. So you always fire one minute before it's opened again. But the, the cattle on the range are not cleared, um, so you just have to fly steer around them. Uh, interesting anomaly on the, on the Woomera range. Uh, it was illegal. to. It was not permitted to fire on the range if there was a kangaroo within the vicinity of the target. Um, because they are protected as a national emblem. However, if there were sheep, you could fire whenever you wanted and kill as many as you wanted. So we always had to send out another helicopter to check for kangaroos before firing each uh, missile, and there were a lot of them out there. 
there's not much else, but there are a lot of kangaroos. Okay, then last year we put a new uh, missile onto, onto Tiger, and this is a really fascinating missile that, uh, working with the Israelis. And again, another cultural boundary to be crossed there. It's a very, very interesting um, people to work with on that. They are very, very pragmatic and straightforward in their approach to uh, development. They are re very much unencumbered by uh, regulations and so on. They make things up as they go along and they're extremely effective. So we fired the Spike missile in Spain last year. And this is a fiber-optic guided missile, so there's a camera in the nose of the missile and a fiber which connects the missile to the aircraft, and it has an auto lock-on. So it's automatically hold, checking the image and holding its position, and it's just corrected. You can see the gunner making little impulse corrections on the accuracy, and as you can see, it's pretty accurate. It also has the advantage that if you don't like it, you can throw the missile away. And I believe that's probably one of the single largest advantages of this missile, that if you if you find that you're firing at something that you shouldn't be firing at, at the very last minute, you can throw the missile away. It's an infantry missile by origin, so it only ignites when it leaves the after it's left the aircraft. Um, so there's no problem with interface with the aircraft. And we had uh, fired, in all the conditions we had fired, we had no in interface problems with the aircraft. We, in fact, eventually only fired four missiles. And the average distance from the center of the target was 30 centimeters at a range of eight kilometers. It's a completely different ball game to what we've done in the past. Right now on to uh, systems integration. Uh, just to talk briefly on the background of the NH-90 and the 725, two entirely different aircraft in terms of systems integration. The NH-90, a modern next generation aircraft with a very high level of integration and the EC-725, which has been developed in small steps of development over the years, from the Puma, the Super Puma, the Super Puma Mark II, and so on, and now to this remarkably powerful, potent aircraft. Great to operate, really easy to operate. The NH-90, however, does have the big advantage of having fly-by-wire. You can see the fly-by-wire circuit here of the NH-90. Uh, so we have uh, a control from the air crew, the normal piloting controls, very conservative, no side sticks or anything, just normal piloting controls, pass through potentiometers, and then it's all electrical after they're going through digital computers or analog computers and up into the main actuators. Now, the whole thing's based on a connection electrically between the air crew and the final rotor, so there's a certain reluctance on the part of the air crew on, on these things, a certain conservatism. However, it is extremely safe. And uh, personally, I broke through the mental barrier the day that we had a on a ferry flight from uh, uh, Munich to Marseille. We flew through a, a rain shower, which was just immense, and the whole aircraft, the windscreen wipers didn't even work anymore. And we got water egress into the electrical system, and out went the whole electrics. So the whole cockpit went black, and we were still on it on fly-by-wire, and it carried on, and my confidence boosted immensely to know that even under the worst possible disturbance systems, you've still got this uh, connection with the um, with the aircraft. Um, the cockpits of the uh, NH-90 and this EC-725 uh, or 225, as it's otherwise called, very, very similar. Uh, and the NH-90 is very much wider, so we have an extra screen in the middle. The 725, similar principle, a lot of multifunction displays. 
uh, with different functions for displaying systems information or navigation or piloting information or infrared imagery or whatever. So from a piloting point of view, these two aircraft are actually very similar. Uh, even from a symbology point of view, we've used very much the same symbology in the two aircraft to have a commonality between the two. However, behind those, uh, that upper surface, um, we have a very much higher level of integration on the NH90. So we have a, a buzz system with the avionic control uh, running the buzz and very much more centralized integrated packages in comparison to the 725. Here's the system structure of the 725, which is basically a set of four multifunction displays which are receiving information from countless different boxes, often unprocessed, and it's just being processed by the MFD on the arrival process to be presented to the pilot. So still very much scattered, very much lower level of integration, but the actual effect in the cockpit is remarkably similar. The advantage, obviously, for the NH90 high level of integration lies in the future that it's much already now with 14 customers and 25 different variants of the uh, NH90, it's become much easier to integrate new variants rather than having to fit in new boxes. We just uh, can uh, absorb differences between the different systems. EC725, love this one. Uh, it's now becoming more or less standard, but uh, we have the, the, the standard panic button. In other words, in the event of an engine failure, just press the button and the aircraft will fly a perfect schedule in terms of power, speed, altitude, everything, and get you out of the mess in a much better way than any pilot can ever do. So this is, again, a case of uh, um, systems being able to do a better job than the pilot. Right, now to the future, the real core. Challenges for the future. Rotor systems. These are my ideas of what our main challenges are for the future. First of all, rotor systems. I think generally we can tick the box. Um, we've got at the moment uh, three rotor systems, which are primary ones on the three aircraft, NH90, Tiger, and EC135, which cover all our requirements for a sort of transport aircraft that needs a low-maintenance uh um, Spheriflex um, elastoma bearing based uh, head uh, NH90 style there. These are all extremely simple um, rotor systems with just elastoma bearings and uh, no conventional bearings anymore. Or the Tiger one which is very much more rigid and uh, which uh, involves no uh, flapping of the uh, outer elements. The, the flapping uh, moment is all taken by the bending of the blades. Um, and then coming down to the EC-135, which is probably the most rigid of the three, because the EC-135 is a true bearingless rotor. There are no bearings in it, so the, torsion, the movement of the blade pitch is taken by twisting of the blades. The flapping is also by bending of the blades, and the lead lag is by bending of the blades. And that is a truly remarkable um, rotor system, which was developed way back in the uh, late 80s in, uh, from the MBB side and uh, has uh, proven itself in the six or 700 aircraft that we've now solved, sold on that one. And I think that that rotor system might be seen on other aircraft in the future. Robust, low cost, low maintenance. Blade profiles, ongoing job. There's always improvement to be made. We've got several things up our sleeve, but it's really very incremental. Nothing, no major breakthroughs expected there. Composites, composite blades have been flying on helicopters longer than I've been on this planet. So, uh, um, that uh, is more or less sewn up on the blade side. The fuselage side now with the modern aircraft is the, the way to go. 
we just leave our, our offspring to get rid of the things when they're mustered out, uh, taken out of service in 40 years' time. Noise, noise improving all the time, all sorts of nice tricks coming up there, higher harmonic control, um, blade profiles, uh, uh, approach profiles as well, uh, very, very steep profiles into hospitals, that sort of thing. There's all sorts of ways to reduce noise because it's really becoming a very important uh, element which can completely block helicopter sales or usage. If you have a, a lot of noise complaints around a hospital, then you can forget it. That's one less helicopter that you can sell for that hospital. And a lot of patients who are going to get to hospital a lot later. Vibration. Vibration, uh, helicopters will always vibrate. Um, uh, however, if you consider, I have now marked my reference of the way to, of a vibrationless aircraft with the EC-155. It is a flying carpet. There are ways and means of reducing vibration down to zero. It just costs weight and money. That's all. Um, but it's possible. And the sort of systems like on the Tiger, the Tiger never had vibration problems right from the very start. Um, it's a very simple system, a flapping mass, typical sort of vibration, uh, anti-vibration measure. And all that we did on the Tiger development was change that mass once, and apart from that, uh, nothing to do. And it really is remarkably low vibration. So... Operating costs, again, incremental, ongoing task. It's the absolute, uh, it's really becoming a very important element, and every single aspect of the aircraft has to be looked at. Altitude and power, I put those together in the same bundle. Here we have an aircraft. Um, this is the easiest way to get to the top of Mont Blanc, by the way. Um, I, this was a, one of the most, those unique experiences, a, a, a autumn evening, zero wind, infinite visibility, sunshine to the end of the world. Five people on board and Mont Blanc just waiting to be landed on. So go and land on it. And this is five people on board, fuel for one hour, uh, for this uh, rescue mission aircraft. And so it's quite an, in, effective in, in, in uh, terms of payload. And to prove there are five of you, there are actually four heads in the, in the cabin. There are two in the back and two in the front. And you can see the footsteps from the flight test engineer who was sent to take the photograph. <laughs> so that's what flight test engineers are there for. Um, but this aircraft, the EC-145, uh, I, I personally was actually quite surprised. Uh, it's difficult to break into the American market, but to sell 300 of the things to replace the Huey, the ultimate American aircraft helicopter, to replace it with a with a European product to the length of 300 aircraft is quite extraordinary. And uh, I'm very pleased that that's gone on because it's a, it's a magnificent beast and uh, bags of power and, and uh, capable of altitude. Okay, but go, to go on to altitude, um, one of our aircraft, which is really built for high power, is the uh, Squirrel B3. This is, I, I have no part in this Everest business except from having watched from the sidelines. It was all hush-hush, but I was allowed into the uh, inner circle of preparation, and it's absolutely fascinating task to send an aircraft up to land on Everest and to do it before the others and not to let anybody know you're coming. Um, so... We put an aircraft onto the top of Everest two years ago, Didier Del Sal, the uh, test pilot for the Squirrel at the time. That's him looking to check out the weather before going up to the top. Um, took an aircraft up into uh, Nepal for uh, two weeks, and uh, after having spent a phase of pre-trials in Marignan and breaking more or less one record a day, as they did, this is a series aircraft just borrowed from a customer, strip a few things out, put some cameras in, and go and land on Everest. 
Um, quite a remarkable feat, except that Didier did actually lose 10 kilos of body weight in order to help with the uh, weight calculations. As it turns, this is the South Col. I mean, I can remember this from my childhood, reading books about guys camping on the South Col, but just to go up there and land and then take off again. And in fact, just before they went and landed on Everest, a couple of days before, there was some mountain, mountaineers got into trouble at 19,000 feet, and he went and picked them up. Um, so there's a potential there as well for really high-altitude rescue on these aircraft. So this is the uh, final approach to Everest for the first time. You can see the peak film from underneath the aircraft. And you'll see later when he's on the top that, in fact, it's control and not power that's the problem. He's battling with the wind. So he's landing on. There's an oxygen bottle just there, which he was using as a reference. And there's a strange mark in the snow there. He said he hadn't been up the day before, but it's very strange. It came out in the video. He hadn't told anybody, but he'd actually gone up and had a go. So this is the first official landing. He's got about 50 knots of wind here, so it's, it's quite, a, quite a tricky maneuver. And you can see there he's really working quite hard to hold the thing. In order to get the record, you have to be in constant contact with the ground for two minutes. The problem was that the system for recording the landing uh, was based on a, on a glider uh, recording system for competition, and it switched off after 30 seconds, assuming that the glider had landed. And so there's a gap in the data. So when they got, he, he said, came back down from the mountains, that I landed on Everest, and they looked into the data and says, prove it. Um, so he had to go back the next day and do it again, which didn't please him greatly. However... The second landing, actually, is, looks far more... He's got both skids well into the snow by the time he's really starting to break up the snow. Anyway, so that's one thing, one record that can't be beaten. Right, the final parameter as challenge for the future, speed. Um, we've had uh, various goes at speed over the years, and, uh, I mean, we've had uh, the, the, the record with the Lynx, which came out at... Uh, noted it down here... 200 and something knots, 216 knots. And then the French claimed that they'd also established a record at 200 knots. Uh, it was under different circumstances, so it, was, it is actually a record. But anyway, 216 knots by John Eggington, uh, which is uh, a record which stands still today. But how to go faster with, with helicopters? There is a need to go faster. All the fixed-wing people are trying to go slower. We need to go faster. Um, so... We're looking now to ways of, uh, of, of getting out beyond this speed barrier. Um, modern helicopters are, tend to be a standard main rotor, tail rotor, or Fenestron configuration. And I think with that configuration, we're probably going to top out at about 180 knots horizontal speed uh, without really pushing things to the limit. And I think for most of these record attempts, we really are pushing things to the limit. Um, the tilt rotor going into operation now. Uh, good concept. Um, Eurocopter kept it in the bottom drawer, and it's still in the bottom drawer, uh, waiting to know whether it really is a market for that out there. But my uh, keys to higher speed, from my point of view, if we are going to go higher, we've still got to maintain the advantages of a helicopter, so we've got to come back and land afterwards, So, and we can't destroy everything around us when we land. We can't have specially prepared pads, so we have to... Uh, we cannot accept higher downwash speeds than we have at the moment. We cannot accept higher noise levels than we have at the moment. The power required for 220 knots is about two times the power required for horizontal flight, as John Eggington proved. And uh, so if you lose an engine in the hover, um, you're on half power 
then you have that engine running out at full speed and you can achieve 220 knots. That's a general rule of thumb. You need short transmissions for your power. You can't pump power down to different corners of the aircraft and lose half of it on the way. So we need short transmission uh, chains. We need low drag. It's very nice producing large rotor systems which are supposedly going fast but which have an extremely high drag and it's particularly around the hub of the rotor where we get the drag. And most important, there should be no element on board of the aircraft which is not advantageous in all phases of flight and is not disadvantageous in any phase of flight. So what's been tried up till now, Ferry Rotodyne, well covered a few years ago in the Sierra lecture, but with large wings, which have a lot of downwash in the hover and a lot of noise from the tip propulsion of the blades. So I really, a version of that perhaps in the future, but uh, not really. The Cheyenne, which made a good attempt, hampered by a poor main rotor and various uh, unfortunate incidents in the development but also driving 2,000 kilowatts of power down a seven-meter shaft is not necessarily the best way to go. The compound helicopter, engines on the side, if they're no use to you in the hover, they break the rule of not of being uh, superfluous. And the latest one, which is great to see flying the X-49 Speedhawk, which is a Black Hawk, uh, which Piasecki have uh, just put into the air with a fan on the back end to drive it. Again, possibly the same problems with the massive amounts of power going down the drive shaft to the rear end, but I wait with uh, enthusiasm to see what they actually make out of that one. So leaving uh, all those principles, we have the uh, concentric rotors. Um, nice idea, perhaps good for low uh, mass weights, but not necessarily up into the large, larger aircraft. And uh, strangely enough, one of my favorites, the good old Chinook, maybe we'll see uh, rebirth of the Chinook tandem principle one of these days because that with a couple of turbo fans or something down the back end here instead of just the turbo shaft engines might actually have a lot going for it. There's very little on that aircraft which is uh, negative. So I was asked to try and talk about things in the future. Unfortunately, unfortunately the present economic situation means innovation is everything in helicopter business. And uh, so we in Eurocopter, we're into the business of running a sort of Lockheed Skunk Works to try and keep things as secret as possible before they're released onto the market. And uh, however, recent experience has shown that it's, it's possible to fly quite extraordinary, uh, exotic, uh, innovative elements without anybody noticing, so long as you do it at the right time of day and you take the covers off just before you go flying and that sort of thing. So there's a lot of stuff going on out there, but I'm afraid to say that... Uh, <laughs> You'll have to wait for the uh, for the pictures in the uh, aviation journals. Right, so that completes my presentation, and uh, I'm only six minutes over. I'd be delighted to take any questions on any of those subjects or any other subjects. Thank you very much indeed. We have some roving microphones. Please say who you are and who you belong to when you ask your question. Start over there. Good evening. Thank you very much for a fantastic lecture. My name is Gil, not affiliated to anybody. Two questions, if I may. MD came out with a notar, but nobody else seems to be doing it. Is there a reason for that? And do you think that a forward speed 
faster than the rotor tip speed will be uh, th a thing to watch for. Okay, the, the, my personal limit, as I said, lies at 220 knots, somewhere around there, in terms of power. The rotor tip problems and so on and so forth, they can be largely solved up to 220 knots. Um, and then at 220 knots, we hit that limit in terms of power. Um, the, that's the last part of the question. The first part of the question, the notar, um, I had the good fortune to fly one once, very, very briefly. Um, I must say that in the, in the flight profile that I did, I really didn't notice anything, any difference to a conventional uh, helicopter. There were questions about autorotation and so on, but I mean, it, the aircraft is perfectly certified now, and uh, so it seemed to be working. Perhaps it's a concept which only works at very low weights. I'm, uh, you know, that is my, that's my feeling that, um, the whole system of blown air down the tube and so on. It's rather like the problem with transmitting, uh, power down long shafts, bl blowing air down a long tube and so on is perhaps problematical. Um, uh, the Explorer, uh, was being developed in parallel to the EC-135 and it had us very, very worried. And in the initial stages, we were neck and neck with them in terms of initial sales and so on and so forth. And we really thought, here's a concept that's going to wipe us off the market. Why didn't we get this one? But it's just one of those things. It just, maybe it's attributable to that particular aircraft. It's like with so many of these concepts, there are funny little things that happen during the development of you have an accident or something's, some element of the aircraft is configured in the wrong way that just stops what would otherwise have been a really good idea. And then there's not the money to go and try again. You don't get two bites at these uh, sort of new concepts. Oh, thanks. Keith Burns, Chief Executive of the Royal Aeronautical Society. Could you say a bit about noise? Because the fact is that we live in an age where noise is less and less acceptable to the uh, uh, average member of the general public. And that, to me, would mean that unless there are quite considerable strides made in making um, rotary wing aircraft quieter, that the market is going to be severely limited. You know, we see fixed-wing airliners steadily becoming quieter and having to to meet regulation. We see helicopter operations, if anything, being restricted. The obvious one is the link between Gatwick and Heathrow many years ago that was stopped. Um, I, 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 without divulging anything you can't divulge, what, what, is there any real hope that the noise levels are going to come down significantly so that uh, they are more publicly acceptable? Uh, it's a, there's, I don't see a, a real major breakthrough that we're suddenly going to have a big, a different type of fan on the top, put a fenestron on the top or anything like that. But what we're doing is we're shaving away decibel by decibel. And I can give you one example when we went off with the EC-135. Same aircraft, two different engines. Two different teams told to measure the noise under real laboratory conditions for the certification of the same aircraft. One team using the maximum of allowance in the height at which you have to overfly the microphone and letting the aircraft balloon and not making control inputs and so on. The other team furiously trying to hold the height perfectly on a GPS system that gave them a perfect readout. And as they fly over the microphone, essentially moving the controls, we got a considerable difference in the results of those two aircraft and we had to go back and do the second one again in order to get the both aircraft, which the engines make no difference to the noise, get them identical on paper so that we could pub publish that the two engines are the same. So that was caused by the pilot just over-controlling on the, on the rotor. And that's the sort of thing where, which we're looking into, higher harmonic controls, piezoelectric controls of the blades, 
so that we can really uh, control the blades, make sure the blades don't hit the preceding uh, vortex of the preceding blades uh, in different phases of descent, um, having different uh, manipulation of the blades. Um, we actually have, on all our harmonic-controlled tests, we have basically a switch which goes uh, um, loud and no vibration or quiet and vibration. Uh, it's a balance between the two. There's also, we're getting to know lots and lots. Of, uh, this is a mathematician, mathematician's paradise, this sort of stuff, um, because modeling the vortices of the preceding blade. But other simple examples, uh, two months ago, a trial that we did in Lausanne following uh, new uh, global positioning system approaches into a hospital in Lausanne. And the, uh, we asked just around the public who live around the hospital what they thought of the trials that we've been performing, and they said they hadn't really heard the helicopter coming until it was there because we were using an entirely different approach, which was actually adapted to being the best approach for producing the minimum noise. So there's all sorts of stuff that we can do, um, but it's, it's all, as I say, shaving away decibel by decibel, blade profiles, higher harmonic controls, approach profiles. There is There is progress there, and we know that... Uh, we can kill our own market if we don't do something about it because it's just becoming a subject number one. Thank you. Hi, Andrew. Uh, Steve Daniels, uh, D-Flying at Boscombe Down. Um, can I ask you a question about integration between the contractor, i.e. industry, and the military test flying process in Europe? Because um, in the UK, we're trying to integrate better the, the trials teams to, to make the process shorter. Have you got any top tips as, as to how industry and military flight testing is integrated in Europe that we might be able to learn from, please? <laughs> I, I, I can give you some really good uh, examples and I can give you some really bad examples and if you take them and analyze them in detail, you'll find it's all personal and that within the, um, within the uh, mandate of both sides, there are uh, all extremes of behavior which are possible. We've had, for example, on the Tiger program on the German side, a pilot who essentially considers himself as an industry pilot right from the beginning. If we, if somebody was sick, we'd call him and he'd come and do an industry flight for us without even asking. Um, and, and vice versa. We were doing qualification flights for him. Uh, and it was a, a close cooperation and knowing each other well and establishing who was the core team and, and, and who actually had the interfaces and who was supposed to talk to whom. The problem comes when you get a large number of people trying to mix into the affair. So on the French side at the moment, what we have is we have a industry flight test integrated team who are led up by a pilot and a flight test engineer, sorry, the other order, flight test engineer and pilot in terms of seniority effectively, um, on the industry side and the same pair on the military side. And they are supposed to make sure that the whole thing works and they have um, a certain limitations and mandate numbers of flying hours and so on and so forth. And they have a contract which actually defines their interface. And working out that contract is difficult. We've got, we had one for the Tiger. We had one for the next phase of the Tiger. We've got the same basic sentences you can still find in the latest NH90 contract. But it's really defining what are the rules of the game and then actually picking the individuals and making them work together. Um, but it's a it's a horrible grey area, and mixed crews sometimes can be uh, getting on towards flight safety hazards. Um, they can also you can sometimes have a mixed crew which is safer than uh, an industry crew or a services crew. Um, but I'm afraid to say it often boils down to uh, human nature um, and making sure that the people know that they have a, a duty to cooperate with each other. 
Thank you. And just on the on the on the question of interface between military and civil, just an anecdote. Uh, the pilot which I have working for our daughter company in Finland, uh, who's a civilian who's just left the Finnish army, is as far as I can establish the only pilot in the world who's flying without a license. <laughs> he's, he's working on the NH90 program, and the civil, the Finnish civil authority said we can't give him a license. The military said we can't give him a license. We have those two pieces of paper. We also have a piece of paper from the insurers saying, yeah, we'll insure him, um, <laughs> and we make sure he goes to see the doctor once a year. And that's it. It's uh, quite extraordinary. It's a complete uh, standoff. And I, I was talking earlier uh, about the, um, the problems of grey areas where you have aircraft with uh, French. Uh, we're having to send our first NH-90s to Australia with a French military registration with an authorization for the f Australian military pilots to fly in Australia on their aircraft because the Australian authorities won't let them. So it's an absolute nightmare. And legally, it's uh, it's... It's no man's land. Nobody wants to produce a document which says the responsibility lies there or the responsibility lies there. Richard Brown, uh, Glasgow University. Uh, a fascinating talk, but uh, with one fundamental assertion that I think we should really challenge you on before you get the chance to sneak out the door. Uh, and that is you've presented many, many interesting images of helicopters in flight with one interesting and uh, conspicuous exception, and that is Cornu's helicopter itself. Would you care to comment on that? <laughs> <laughs> okay, there are, as with all these first flight things, I mean, there are even the Wright brothers are, are questioned. And um, uh, if you look around the time that Cornu actually lifted off for his famous 20 seconds, which was witnessed by several people but not photographed, unfortunately, despite that remarkably high-quality photograph of him on the ground. Um, but uh, there's only witness reports. Then there were a lot of people that summer of, uh, 2000, of 1907. There were people all over Europe and the world, in fact, trying to get off the air with strange rotating machines. And Breguet actually lifted, uh, lifted off but was not in free flight. So that was the definition um, which certainly uh, Eurocopter locks onto is that it was the first free helicopter flight, even if it was remarkably short. Um, but no, there's no... Um, there's no more evidence than uh, eyewitness reports. Thank you very much. Nicholas Simons from the MOD. Um, uh, just a couple of questions on if you can talk about survivability and crashworthiness and escape from these helicopters. Are there any new innovations or uh, new materials technology coming out so uh, uh, pilots can escape, either maybe in the air or afterwards on the land or even in the water? Um, I think the, the real breakthrough... Um, in terms of crashworthiness, uh, most of the civil aircraft now have a remarkable crashworthiness. Uh, what was his name? The chap who used to run BAR Racing, who crashed his EC-135 uh, last weekend or the weekend before, um, and walked away from it. Uh, that and that sort of accident is often largely attributable to the crashworthiness elements, the energy absorption elements in the seats and so on within the within the uh, civilian aircraft. Within the military aircraft, it's a whole different uh, kettle of fish. Um, the crashworthiness requirements are far more stringent. And, um, in fact, on the first Tiger crash test, we had the aircraft fold at about the level of the, of the rear uh, the gunner's cockpit. And so we've had to reinforce the uh, fuselage. In fact, there are two avionics bays doors there, which didn't used to be part of the structure, which are now actually part of the structure and assist to uh, reinforce it there. And we did actually crash a Tiger in Australia by mistake. 
and uh, the air crew walked away. One thing we did establish there, they didn't need to blow the windows out because they blew out themselves. They cracked, smashed up themselves due to the flexibility of the aircraft. And he flew into the ground at 80 knots, if I remember rightly, about 15 degrees of bank and about uh, 500 feet per minute rate of descent. So it was a fully-fledged crash, and both of them walked away. Uh, the French pilot cut his lip, which was upset him slightly, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, it was a recovery, but the uh, the NH90 is the is the real breakthrough. That's that's the place where uh, the customer really does get something for his money in the composite fuselage. If you witness the NH90 crash tests of what's going on in the to the troops in the back, and that's one of the main reasons why the Australians selected the NH90 after they had that very unpleasant series of uh, Black Hawk crashes where a lot of people were killed. And uh, it was one of the deciding factors. Uh, if you see the videos of the crash tests of the NH-90, the amount of energy absorption that's going on underneath the floor and uh, the whole fuselage and then ultimately in the seats themselves is very impressive. The Tiger pilot seat, for example, if you put 51G at the bottom of the seat, which is what it gets with a really full-on crash, you get 15G at the, at the pilot, which is survivable. It's an expensive structure, but it pays off in survivability, and nowadays the price of a soldier is uh, very high. Um, Richard Gardner from the Society's Aerospace International. Um, the, the Puma and, and the Gazelle in the, in the UK service have, have been around for, what, 35 years, and they, if, they're, if they're refurbished, they'll probably go on for another 20, so, uh, all the Pumas anyway. Um, so the, the airframes seem to last forever these days, and it must be really good business building aircraft that last for 40 years. Um, the, the movement within uh, fixed-wing aircraft now is, is to sort of build in these um, uh, architectures for the, for the electronic systems and everything else so that you can plug and play over, over decades without having to strip down and totally rebuild the aircraft. Could you say anything about um, your thoughts on how helicopter sort of systems architecture is going? Because presumably, from what you say, they, they, there's no huge radical breakthrough expected in the actual platforms, but maybe the scope for um, sort of more modern approaches to the way that they're fitted out. Yeah, the um, the Tiger and NH-90 system structure is actually, if you look at the, uh, the date at which it was designed, is actually very old now. Um, and through updates of the individual boxes, we're keeping keeping up with the uh, with the developments and the requirements of the latest generation. But I don't see at the moment a major leap forward from the 1553 type NH90 uh, systems layout. Um, we see, we see have a tremendous challenge coping with all the different customers. And one of the interesting uh, challenges we were faced with was for the uh, Tiger um, Turkish. Uh, project where the customer basically wanted a much simplified system and having to rip the uh, existing system out and presenting uh, a simplified system uh, is possible but it's uh, it's very expensive. I see a midlife update with a major revamping of the structure on those aircraft not for the next 20 years. Um, in terms of fuselages and so on, yes, it is, it's um, disappointing that Things like CH-53s go on forever. Um, on the German side of the company, we have the contract for upgrading all the links and the CH-53s in Germany, and that seems to be... Uh, they're going to be flying when I'm long and long dead and gone, I think. Um, and uh, you're right, This, I think in the future you'll probably be building the fuselage, which seems to be more or less indestructible, certainly with the ro rigid rotors and that sort of thing, going on forever, and having to build in the means of putting in new systems from the beginning.
but those systems with the 1553 bus will go on for at least another 20 years with modifications. Perhaps I can have one. Do you see a role for unmanned rotorcraft? Is that something the company is pursuing? Yes, we are. Senior skunk works, perhaps, and you can't say anything. Yes, we are. Everybody <laughs> is. Um, it's big business. Uh, it's a question of what uh, vehicle to choose. Um, the uh, most of the sort of psychological barriers are being broken on that on that uh, on the fixed wing side anyway. Yeah. Um, regularly, when we fly at the French flight test centre, we have to share the circuit with something that's got nobody on board. Um, which is a little bit awe-inspiring to start with, but you get used to it. And uh, when we were flying at Woomera, that was the norm. Most of the aircraft in the circuit had nobody on board. Um, so on rotary wing, yes, we're looking for small vehicles to uh, sort of one or maximum two tons, um, mm -hmm. which is the sort of uh, payload, all that's necessary for that type of vehicle and it's very much a question of us as a helicopter manufacturer just producing uh, pro uh, providing a very simple um, vehicle and the systems which are required in these are so complex that it's more a sort of systems talus uh, sort of responsibility to put the guts into the aircraft. To what roles predominantly? Reconnaissance? Reconnaissance, surveillance. I, at the moment, as usual in these sort of things, it's uh, led by the military, but it's going to be in the civil world as soon as people can get used to the fact that, there are, that they are unmanned and in civil airspace. So okay. surveillance of all sorts of uh, situations. I would make a comment about the unmanned uh, helicopters, which I've been working with now since 1960-something. Um, and we found that there was enormous range of jobs which people wanted us to do uh, for, with unmanned helicopters. In fact, we didn't have to think of the jobs. The customers came to us and said, can you do this, can you do that? Both uh, legal and illegal, I will add. Um, <laughs> so if, if you would like to talk about that afterwards sometimes, uh, that would be great. But the other thing about uh, the rotorcraft, of course, is that um, it's so much more versatile than the fixed-wing aircraft in unmanned form. Uh, and we must have clocked up something like uh, 50 or 60 different types of operations on the civil side uh, and then on the military side again there's a whole raft of things which far more than just reconnaissance for example uh, checking out uh, battlefield pollution in terms of nuclear or whatever uh, a whole right range of things exploding mines landmines and so enormous uh, possibilities uh, once you take the pilot out or the air crew out uh, by the way I'm not proposing that uh, all helicopters will be uh, unmanned, far from it, they're complementary. Um, but once you take the pilot out, the aircrew out, then you can design it to be far more stealthy and uh, you, can, you have a compromise between the aerodynamics and the stealth, it's true. But uh, uh, also you have the opportunity to try out many different techniques and configurations without putting people at risk. But uh, maybe we can talk about that some other time. Sounds like a good yeah. topic for a glass of wine, Reg. Yeah. <laughs> So. The um, we we actually flew a B0105 uh, controlled from the ground in 1986. Uh, one of the pilots on the in the company was actually a radio control freak, and uh, he was standing on the ground with his little uh, buttons controlling the aircraft. And at the time, uh, one of the roles we were looking for into was logging, um, or not logging, but moving uh, cement around in the Alps and so on and so forth, which is a a role where 90 kilos of human is always just 90 kilos less of payload. And there are all sorts of very simple tasks, air, uh, aerial work tasks, which can be taken over. Um, I'd like to call upon Mike Broad now, if he would, to give us a vote of thanks.
Thanks, Tim. Andrew, um, when the chairman asked me, I think I, I actually almost volunteered, which is unusual these days, um, <laughs> to propose the vote of thanks, he, he did express some concern, as I've been one who's try, who tried to promote in UK celebration of Cornu's activity, whatever it was, best kept secret outside of France, I think. Um, so I was pleased that uh, another question asked the question that I was going to do, and you you you, you answered it as I thought you would. Um, your 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 lecture has been very much, to my mind, you know, a people thing. It's been about people. Um, the first, one of the first slides you you talked about the pessimistic um, helicopter pilot, and having had a small amount of experience of helicopter pilots, and uh, I appreciate that slide. Um, but Cornu himself, as far as I recall, I think he was actually, eventually, he actually died in an air raid in France during the uh, Second World War. Um, so, yes, something bad <laughs> did, did eventually happen. Um, but I was very intrigued by, by um, your, your talk about people. We, we talked about um, culture, about relationships, um, about contacts. All these things shows that our, in our um, um, industry is based on what people do. I recall that the pioneers um, found that they, they um, had to use bearings on their rotors to make it possible to fly them. We now have a situation, as you just explained, that we now can do without the bearings, if only the pioneers mm -hmm. had known that. Um, one of my colleagues on the Rotorcraft Committee uh, reminded me of um, the, the brief for this year of the lecture. And um, as I recall him saying, um, Sea of the lecture was given by a significant contributor to helicopter development. Have a tick in the box there. Um, it should be a retrospective view, um, but coupled with, and we have a tick in the box there, of course, coupled with a review of current of the current situation, and we certainly have had a tick in the box there. And finally, a forward look. I passing the baton on to some on to someone else, and so your final slide of watch this space uh, was very appropriate. You certainly hit the peak um, with our amazing pictures of the peak of, peak, peak, peak of Everest. I think another colleague who's here, here tonight remind, reminded me it was, I think, 75th anniversary of managing to fly over Everest mm -hmm. with a Western air, um, aircraft. I have yeah. to get that plane. <laughs> <laughs> but, Andrew, um, coming back to the peak, all these things are done by people. And coming back to the people thing... Um, the other remit for a Sierra lecture, which uh, we don't mention, but we're pleased when 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 it happened, was that the speech should be entertaining, and your and, and your lecture was certainly very very entertaining. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I would ask um, all my colleagues here to join with me in thank in, in thanking you for your presentation. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you.